Who are the Jehovah's Witnesses? Why do they knock on millions of doors spreading their message? What do they believe? You might be shocked. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist, Dr. Pat Zucharin. Recently, Pat invited Dr. Ron Rhodes, author of Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses, to address this topic at a conference in Hawaii. Today, you'll hear part two of that presentation. And by the way, it's crucial resources like these that we offer at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's articles, books, interviews with leading scholars, and past programs available for download on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, Pat Zucharin presents Dr. Ron Rhodes on the Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm just going to play the role of a Jehovah's Witness if I could. Would you mind if I do that? Real quick, I'm just going to make like I'm a Jehovah's Witness, and I'm going to give you the, the standard passages they use, okay? I'm glad you said come in. Last time I did a conference on this subject, someone said, go away! And that's not what you want to do. Okay, so I'm coming in. You know, a lot of people think that Jesus is eternal deity, but when you think about it, that's not what Scripture teaches at all. In fact, he's called the Son of God in John 3.16. Now, if Jesus was God like the Father was, wouldn't he be the Father? But he's called the Son. Therefore, he must be a lesser God than God the Father. Uh, furthermore, Colossians 1.15 says that he is the firstborn of God's creation. Well, the firstborn must mean that he was created. The Father was never called the firstborn, but Jesus is. Therefore, Jesus must be a lesser God than God the Father. And hey, how can you deny Jesus' own words in John 14.28? The Father is greater than I am. Clearly, Jesus was teaching that he is a lesser God. And in 1 Corinthians 11.3, we read that God is the head of Christ. That must mean that Jesus is a lesser God than God the Father. Otherwise, it would say Christ is the head of everything else. But it says that God is the head of Christ. And then finally, in Revelation 3.14, it says that Christ is the beginning of God's creation. He must have been created first, and then everything else was created. All right, my role is over as Jehovah's Witness. The average Christian has no idea how to answer those verses, and it sounds very convincing. And it's one of those things where stringing these verses together without looking at the context seems to make an airtight case. This is one of the reasons why I said that the average Jehovah's Witness can make a doctrinal pretzel out of the average Christian in about 20 seconds. You string these kind of verses together, most Christians have no idea in what to say. Now, I'm actually going to answer these verses, but later. So you're going to have to wait. Number six, they say that there are two peoples of God, the anointed class who have a destiny in heaven, and the other sheep who have a destiny on a paradise earth. You've got the elite and the not elite. The anointed class are the 144,000 mentioned in Revelation 7. They are the ones who are born again for spirit life in heaven. They will be resurrected as spirits, just like Jesus was resurrected as a spirit. And they say that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God or heaven, and so only spirits can go to heaven, and that's who these are. 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses will be spirits who are resurrected and will live with Jesus in heaven. And they will rule with Christ. Now, if they rule with Christ, they've got to have somebody to rule over. That's the other sheep. And they live forever on a paradise earth. So um, it's interesting that back in 1935, I believe it was, Judge Rutherford had a revelation from God to the effect that all the available slots for the 144,000 were taken up that year. That means that every Jehovah's Witness since then has only been able to look forward to the possibility of living on the paradise earth. 
That's what they teach. And then number seven, salvation is based on works and total obedience to the Watchtower Society. There is no assurance of salvation. You know, sometimes I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses and they make like salvation is a grace gift, a free gift to man. But in reality, it, it, it really boils down to the fact that uh, Jesus' sacrifice took care of Adam's sin so that now you and I have the opportunity to earn our salvation. That's works. That's not grace. The salvation that you and I receive from Jesus is a gift that we receive. But in the Jehovah's Witness mindset, they've got to go door to door. Um, in fact, I was talking to a Jehovah's Witness named Mandy not long ago. Mandy came by my house. She rang my doorbell, and I talked to her for about 20 minutes. And uh, I, said, I said, do you enjoy going door to door like this and handing out uh, Jehovah's Witness literature? And she said, oh, I just hate it. <laughs> kind of took me back a little bit. She was just a real honest Jehovah's Witness. And she said, no, I, I just hate it. But, you know, Jehovah's Witness doctrine teaches that we have to go out and, and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And part of that is handing out literature door to door. And so I said to her, I said, well, Mandy, what if I could tell you a way to receive the free gift of salvation without having going, you know, go door to door handing out watchtower literature? Would you be interested? And she didn't come out and say she'd be interested, but I told her anyway. And, you know, she left, and my prayer is that God, the Holy Spirit, touched her heart later that day. I, I really pray that, because she was a real nice girl, and, and I hate to see people lost up in this stuff. But in any event, uh, you can't have an assurance of salvation in a work system like the Watchtower Society. Listen to some of these quotes. Come to Jehovah's Organization for salvation, as if you can't get it anywhere else. Unless we are in touch with this channel of communication, the Watchtower Society that God is using, we will not progress along the road to life, no matter how much Bible reading we do. You've got to have the Watchtower. Uh, to receive everlasting life in the earthly paradise, we must identify that organization and serve God as part of it. To get one's name written in that book of life will depend upon one's works. So this is the Watchtower viewpoint on salvation. It is a work system, and nobody's good enough. Well, I'm so glad that I have a God of grace that gives me salvation as a gift. Uh, in terms of eschatology, I don't want to spend too much time here, but they do say that Christ came again back in 1914. It was invisible. It was an invisible coming. That's kind of in keeping with Jesus' invisible resurrection, right? He resurrected as a spirit creature, an angel, and so his second coming was invisible as well. Armageddon is always portrayed as being right around the corner. You better join up with the watchtower now while there's still time. Otherwise, you may miss out. Very often, they, they've used Armageddon as a tool to manipulate people into joining now because Armageddon is so close. They do talk about God's kingdom and how the faithful will be rewarded and enter into God's kingdom, but those who are unfaithful will be excluded and snuffed out of existence. Heaven, as I said, is only for the anointed class. Paradise Earth is for the other class. And then hell is denied altogether. Hell is not a place of eternal suffering, but is simply the grave of humankind. So nobody suffers for all eternity in Watchtower theology. They're just snuffed out of existence. Now let's answer the Jehovah's Witness doctrines. Isn't that a great picture? I had to wrestle that wolf for about two hours. But for Pat Zucharin, I mean, you know, I'm willing to go to that, that, that trouble. Uh, in any event, the Jehovah's Witnesses have many false doctrines that we need to be able to answer. And the first thing I like to do is to demonstrate that the Watchtower Society is a false prophet. It is a false prophet. In 1914, they said that uh, Jehovah would set up his kingdom on earth. didn't happen. In 1925, they say that uh, the, the patriarchs would be resurrected from the dead and live in Beth Sharim in San Diego. didn't happen. 1975, Jehovah was supposed to set up his government on earth. 
didn't happen. There's many more. I just gave you three, but there's many, many more. It's kind of interesting because Raymond Franz, the nephew of Frederick Franz, defected and wrote a book called Crisis of Conscience. And he documented with incredible um, um, accuracy and incredible detail many false prophecies, changes on important doctrines, lies and cover-ups. He talked about the translators of the New World Translation. I mean, those guys must have had a heart attack when they saw this book come out because it really spilled the beans on things. Uh, the, the Watchtower Society is a false prophet, and one of the reasons why you want to help the Jehovah's Witness understand this is because if you can undermine the Watchtower Society, that helps them to take off the lens of the Watchtower as they're reading the Bible. If you can help them to stop trusting the Watchtower, that's a good thing. So even if you're going to be talking about doctrine with the Jehovah's Witness, also talk about the false prophecies because that will help them to uh, not trust it as much. Number two, answer Watchtower excuses regarding false prophecies. They offer an unbelievable number of excuses. For example, they will tell you that Jonah made a mistake on Bible prophecy and he wasn't condemned. So why should we be condemned for our false prophecies? Do you remember what happened with Jonah? Jonah said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, Nineveh wasn't overthrown. Jonah gave a false prophecy and wasn't condemned for it. So therefore, you people shouldn't condemn us for our 1914 and our 1925 and our 1975 false prophecies. Is that good logic? Did Jonah utter a false prophecy? No. Jonah said exactly what God told him to say. But the Ninevites repented. And Jeremiah 18 says, quotes God, God says, whenever I promise judgment against a nation and that nation repents, I will withhold judgment. That's all that happened with Jonah. He uttered a true prophecy, but the Ninevites repented. So Jonah was not a false prophet. I was talking to one Jehovah's Witness named Lou about the false prophecies, and then Lou took me off guard. He said, Ron, I want you to know that we're very sorry. Will you forgive us? Well, that kind of put the burden on me. You know, I've got to be nice. I mean, he's being nice. So I thought about it for just a minute, and then I said to him, Lou, I want you to know that I do forgive you personally, but I do need to ask you a question. Where does it say in the Bible that when a false prophet apologizes for his false prophecy that he's no longer a false prophet? Yeah, hate to say it, Lou, but can you answer that? And uh, we had an interesting discussion after that. And then Lou took a different tack. Lou said, well, you know, Ron, back in those days when we made the prophecies about 1914 and 1925 and so forth, it was real dark. Uh, today, the light is getting brighter in the watchtower. And because the light is brighter, we understand so much more. And so I said to him, Lou, are you telling me that the light is always getting brighter, just constantly and continually? And he said, yes. And I said, Lou, does that mean that the light could get so bright 10 years from now that you're going to discover that everything you believe today is wrong? And he started to squirm a little bit. And then I said, Lou, what if you die tomorrow? And the point was made. And, and I just happened to have a, a Watchtower magazine. I've got all the Watchtowers, you know. Pulled it off the shelf and handed it to him. And it says, new light never contradicts old light. Right there in the Watchtower. I mean, he was just nailed. Absolutely nailed. But the point is, I was trying to nail him in love. Okay? I was trying to nail him in love because, you see, I cared for the person. I cared. Lou was a nice guy. But after that conversation, he never came back. I think that he probably talked to the elders, and the elders intervened. See, and that's one of the sad things about it. But you've got to answer the watchtower excuses regarding the false prophecies. Number three, scripturally demonstrate that Jesus was never the archangel Michael. 
In fact, Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus created all the angels, period. He created all the angels, so they're different classes of beings. Furthermore, Daniel 10 calls Michael one of the chief princes, and by contrast, Jesus is the king of kings. Wouldn't you say there's a difference between the two? A king of kings is in higher authority than one of the chief princes. Michael, as one of the chief princes, was one of a group. We are not told how big that group is. But if he's one of them, that means there's more than one. But Jesus is uniquely and singly the king of kings and lord of lords. Furthermore, Hebrews 2.5 says that no angel can rule the world. But we know that Jesus, as the king of kings, will rule. Jude 9, we find that Michael could not rebuke the devil. But what about Jesus? Could Jesus rebuke the devil? Yes, and he did so on many occasions. For example, when Peter tried to stop Jesus to go to Jerusalem for the crucifixion, Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. It was a rebuke of the devil in working in Peter's heart. See, So the point that I'm making is that there's just multiple scriptural evidences against the idea that uh, Jesus was the archangel Michael. Certainly you will want to answer those verses I brought up earlier that uh, deny the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. And let me just give you the brief take on that. This is real quick. In John 3.16, it is true that Jesus is called the Son of God. But what you have to understand is that Son of, among the ancients, meant same nature as. When Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, the Jews understood that he was claiming to be God. That's why they picked up stones to try to kill him. The term Son of often indicated, among the ancient Hebrews, of the same nature as. Son of the prophets meant prophet. Son of the singers meant singer. Son of God means God. That's right. So that verse doesn't prove that Jesus is a lesser deity. Uh, Colossians 1.15 does tell us that Jesus is the firstborn, but the word firstborn is different than first created. And firstborn was a Jewish idiom, a Jewish word, that meant that referred to the privileged son in the family. And if I might point to David as an example, was David really the firstborn son of Jesse? No, David was the lastborn son but he was actually called the firstborn because he was the preeminent son in the family. And that's what the term firstborn means. It means preeminent one. Now just stop and think with me about Colossians 1. Why would Jesus be called the firstborn or preeminent one? Well, the very next verse, verse 16, says that Jesus created all creation. Doesn't it make sense that the one who created all creation is preeminent over it? Isn't that a no-brainer? But the Jehovah's Witnesses miss that. This verse does not indicate that Jesus is a lesser god. As for Revelation 3.14, which says that Jesus is the beginning of God's creation, it's better translated, Jesus is the beginner of God's creation. It's the Greek word arche. It's from where we get the word architect. Jesus is the architect of God's creation. So that verse doesn't support their theology either. Uh, as for 1 Corinthians 11.3, it does say that God is the head of Christ, but that doesn't mean lesser deity. The verse also said that the man is the head of the woman. I must ask you a question. Are men and women equal in their nature? You look unsure. Uh, they're both human, okay? <laughs> they're both human. They have the same nature, and yet Paul says that one is over the other in authority. In the same way, the Father and the Son have a, an identical nature, a divine nature, but the Father is in authority over the Son. That's all that's going on there. It doesn't mean Jesus is a lesser deity. Jesus has the same nature as the Father, but nevertheless, the Father is in authority over Jesus. That's all that's going on there. And then finally, John 14, 28. Jesus does say the Father is greater than I am. But you've got to understand, the Father was up in heaven surrounded by angels singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. 
Meanwhile, Jesus is down on earth, about to be crucified between two thieves with common criminals, and uh, he's being persecuted. I mean, positionally speaking, Jesus looks to the Father and says, the Father is greater than I am. It's a positional thing. I could say the President of the United States is greater than I am. We're both equal in terms of our nature, but positionally speaking, he's higher than I am, you see. So this verse doesn't indicate that Jesus is a lesser deity either. Now, for those of you who are interested in the, in, in the full uh, explanation of all of this, my book, Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses, really goes into a lot of detail on this. And in fact, there have been many Jehovah's Witnesses who have actually read the book and become Christians, which I never intended. I never intended for them to read the book. But uh, nevertheless, I'm very, very uh, happy to say that that's happened. And then number five, you need to set forth a positive proof of the absolute deity of Christ. There's multiple ways of doing that. Uh, the way that I'll just suggest for uh, time's sake here is comparing the Old and the New Testament. You know, back in the Old Testament, Jehovah is talking to his people. And Jehovah uh, says in Isaiah 44, 24, I am the creator and there is no creator but me. I created the universe all by myself alone. That's what Jehovah says. Now, when you get to the New Testament in Colossians 1.16 and John 1.3 and Hebrews 1.2, it says that Jesus is the creator. Put those verses together and what do you have? Only God is the creator. Jesus is the creator. Does that tell you something about Jesus' identity? He is God. Same thing is true with Isaiah 43.11. Isaiah 43.11 portrays Jehovah speaking to his people, and Jehovah says, I am the Savior. There is no Savior but me, period. That indicates that only God is Savior. And yet in the New Testament, in Titus 2, 13 and 14, we are told that Jesus is our great God and Savior. See, by comparing the Old with the New Testament, we have powerful evidences for the absolute deity of Christ. And again, this is explored in full detail in my book. Number six, provide scriptural proof that Jesus physically resurrected from the dead. In Luke 24, 39, Jesus said, Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. You see, so Jesus acknowledged that he was physical. Uh, Thomas was invited to touch him. He was touched by Mary and other women. He ate food to physically prove his uh, physical resurrection from the dead. Uh, there are other doctrines that we could look at. Uh, in, in terms of time, uh, we really don't have the, uh, the luxury of having a full theological response to everything that, that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Uh, but my book does go into detail about all these doctrines, like the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, God's name being Jehovah and the Holy Spirit not being a force and so forth. Uh, I think I'm going to sum it up by saying this. Uh, in terms of uh, the Trinity, uh, 1 Corinthians 14.33, which says that God is not a God of confusion, that has to do with the church worship. Some people in the church at Corinth were, you know, multiple people were speaking in tongues at once, and multiple people were giving prophecies at the same time. It was chaos. So Paul says, God is not a God of confusion, so you should have a church service that's not confusing. That's basically all Paul is saying. It has nothing to do with the Trinity at all. Uh, in terms of the Holy Spirit not being a force, it does uh, seem to be a good argument that the force or the Spirit had to fill many people at the same time. But if you read through Ephesians, you'll find two verses where God himself is said to fill all things. And Ephesians 4.10, which says that Christ fills all things. Now, is, is Christ... A person? Yes, he is. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit is a person as well. So my point to you is, is that no matter what doctrine you're talking about, there are good theological answers which address every one of these uh, problems. Now I'm going to close real briefly with some practical witnessing tips. 
And uh, this will just help you learn to witness better to the Jehovah's Witness. Number one, demonstrate that the Bible is a Jesus book. The more you can help them see that the Bible is a Jesus book and not a Jehovah book, the more you've done a good thing. And uh, there's a lot of verses that will help you here. Uh, I'm going to give you my email address, ronrhodes at earthlink.net, and this entire message will be emailed to you if you're interested. It will have all of these verses that you can look up, and uh, you know I know it's impossible to write them all down at once. But uh, I'm just going to make that available to you if you email me at ronrhodes at earthlink.net. Number two, focus your heavy attention on God's glorious grace. Salvation is a free gift. Help them to understand you don't got to go door to door handing out literature to earn salvation. Romans 5 says God gives his incredible grace to those who deserve the opposite, condemnation. Give your personal testimony about what Jesus has done in your life and focus on the grace of God. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing you can share with the Jehovah's Witness. do want to warn you that they're uh, trained to answer your objections. Whenever you say something, they've got an answer ready. If you say, well, you're that group that doesn't believe in the Trinity, they've been trained in what to say. If you say, the football game's about to start, they've been trained in what to say. If you say, I've got dinner on the stove, they've been trained in what to say. And I'm just warning you in advance here that so, so you'll know they're just basically regurgitating what they've been taught. This will help you to remain more patient with them. Just, just this knowledge that they're trained to answer your objections. Number four, always, always look up scripture verses that they cite from memory. Because invariably they have miscited and misquoted those verses. Never take their word for it. If you look it up and read it in context, you will find that they have invariably quoted it with a slant towards supporting their theology. If you read it aloud in context, more often than not, it will be quite evident that they have taken things out of context. Number five, always define your terms. Always define your terms. Uh, if you consider this phrase, Jesus Christ is God, he was crucified and he shed his blood and then resurrected from the dead. Scripture speaks of his second coming. You and I could agree with that phrase, but so could the Jehovah's Witness. But they don't mean what you mean. Yes, Jesus Christ is God, but he's a lesser God. He was crucified, but not on a cross, on a stake. He did shed his blood, but that didn't earn your salvation. You've got to go out and earn it. He did resurrect, but not physically. He resurrected spiritually. Scripture does speak of the second coming, but it's already happened, and it was invisible. You see what I'm saying? You've got to define your terms. Whenever you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, define your terms. Number six, ask strategic questions to make important doctrinal points. Again, I point to my book, Reasoning from the Scriptures with the Jehovah's Witnesses, because there's over 300 questions that you can ask from this book that will lovingly nail them against the wall. And the goal is to help them to understand their theology. One example of such a question is this. If the Jehovah's Witnesses are the only true witnesses for God, and if the Jehovah's Witnesses as an organization came into being in the late 19th century, does this mean that God was without a witness for over 18 centuries of church history? Now imagine the cumulative effect of 300 questions like that. Okay? you will make an impact by asking those kinds of questions. And this book exists to help you to do just that. Uh, don't neglect your people skills. Okay? Don't have that kind of face when you're witnessing to a Jehovah's Witness. If they share something about the Trinity, don't look like that. Be loving. Be loving and, and let your heart, let your commitment to Jesus shine through you. Number eight, beware of their peer pressure. They can be disfellowshipped and shunned if, uh, if they question the watchtower. They can be kicked out if they disagree with the watchtower. Be sensitive to their dilemma. Do all that you can to be sensitive to their dilemma. Pray for them that they will have the courage 
to turn away from the watchtower even though they know that they will probably lose their families in the process. Now, my friends, when I, uh, when I come upon a new year every January, I always make a resolution. And I've repeated the resolution every year for the last couple of decades. And that is, Lord, this year, I want to be part of the solution. I want to be part of the solution. And invariably, when I make that commitment to God, God opens up doors of opportunity for me to do that. I would like to encourage you to consider this for yourselves. I would like to encourage you to ponder the possibility that in 2009, you can be part of the solution. Now, you may not go to seminary. You may not become a pastor of a church. But you've got your own little circle of influence. And there will be people who ring your doorbell and want to talk to you. Will you be part of the solution to that limited group of people? Those people desperately need to hear about the gift of salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Don't say go away when they ring the doorbell. Open it up, talk with them, and let the love of Jesus shine through your life. I promise you, Jehovah's Witnesses are coming to know the Lord every day. People in this audience, some of you might have the joy and the experience of leading a Jehovah's Witness to the Lord. Wouldn't that be great? Thank you so much for joining us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and demonstrates the truth of the claims of Christ. If you agree, please support us with your prayers and gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You'll educate yourself and your family, and you'll help us keep expanding. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Go there today.